COP26 may be over, but the conversation has only just begun. And for this podcast, I'll be inviting the stakeholders, firms and organisations that innovate, inspire and encourage small sustainable steps to drive a positive legacy on the road to 2030. Today, I'm joined by Amanda Brock, CEO of Open UK. Uh, Amanda, we're delighted to have you on the show today and thank you very much for giving up your time to join us. Um, we always kick start the show with just a little bit of your career today and your journey in your career and also your passion for sustainability. How did that all start? So um, if you wouldn't mind giving us a little overview view of that, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. And uh, thanks very much, Mark, for having me along today. Um, my career and my journey, gosh, I started out growing up in Creef and uh, small town Scotland. Uh, I think I'm the black sheep in my family because I'm one of the few of them who's ever left Creef, to be honest. I've been out of Scotland since I was 21, uh, living in the States and down here in London. Uh, also lived in Amsterdam for a while. I spent 25 years as a lawyer working across a, a number of different sectors, including in 2008, joining an open source company, company by the name of Canonical. And I spent five years there setting up and running their legal team and really got engaged in open source and open technologies. So that sort of built a passion for me. Um, we can talk more about how I ended up at Open UK and I've been CEO of Open UK for just over two years now, a bit of a career shift for me. Still use lots of my legal skills on the policy side, which is uh, probably the best of both worlds, but I, I super enjoy having all these other things that I, I get involved with beyond my legal background. And on the sustainability front, how did I get into it? Uh, we had an event at COP26 in November, uh, an Open Technology for Sustainability Day, uh, I think the first one that's ever been held. And um, the event opened with a couple of young people. I think we had uh, a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old and a 15-year-old. And I was really nervous about bringing kids to COP26. I was nervous because of the pandemic and I was nervous about youth washing. But actually the 10-year-old is my wee nephew, Ronan, who's from Perth, and Ronan is, oh, I don't know what a nice word is. Uh, he's very determined when it comes to climate change, and he's been pushing climate change and sustainability uh, as something that I needed to understand better since he was about five or six, I think. He's absolutely passionate about the environment and the planet. So he's probably the thing, the single biggest influence on my shift in thinking because the planet that we're all looking at is ours for now but it's his and his generations for the future so he, he made his point well wow that's 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 quite a claim to claim for for your your nephew Amanda <laughs> but um no and in some ways you know I think um you know you know you obviously both of us were quite um, active during COP26 but I think um, the youth kind of movement was something that that even took someone like myself surprise you know I, I probably I'm somewhat probably and leaving that category now somewhat. <laughs> You're closer to it than me. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of brings quite nicely onto that, Amanda. I mean, we we always, I mean, I always do like to reflect on COP26. And the reason I like to do that on the show is because I, it does worry me slightly that in the months after COP26, there has been a bit of a... I guess a kind of not a grinding halt. That's probably the wrong word, but there has been a sort of slowdown in the momentum, and I think it's just really important. And that was one of the motivations behind this podcast to keep the conversation going, you know, and actually 
continue to engage with business as well. So what, I guess, what have been some of the learnings you've took from COP and continue to take from it? And then also some of your own kind of reflections on obviously your event and, and just mm-hmm. the general, you know, kind of buzz around the city in those, in those weeks. Well, it's the first COP that I've been to and it was incredible. And I think it was incredible for the UK to host this and for Scotland to host it because what you, you have is this massive event after a couple of years of lockdown and the world that I sort of live and work in pre the pandemic I traveled more than is probably a good thing but I was all over the world at conferences and events and a lot of my contacts and connections are global and we were able to get together through those we've we've always used digital tools in uh, open technologies but we use them more than we ever did and I think for people in Scotland getting together for the first time at a large event was impactful, irrespective of the climate and the sustainability issues. But part of that actually feeds into how sustainability evolves. And part of that's about collective equity and getting people to the table and not telling people what it is they need, but understanding what it is they want themselves and what they feel is missing or needs to change in their lives. And that collective equity piece is a very big part of open source software. So it's uh, open technologies generally is something that I believe very strongly in the power of community and collaboration. And I think we start to see that evolve more. It's a, a place that with our event, we were trying to help support sustainability by sharing some of our learning as an environment that's or a community that's collaborated for decades on how that we can see more collaboration around sustainability and how that could be more effective, more efficient, so that we uh, produce better outputs. But that youth piece feeds into that whole picture, right? And you have to have everybody engaged and evolved. You can't just have the corporates turning up. You can't probably just have the youth movement either. That's possibly a slightly controversial statement, but they're not going to change the world without the engagement with business. We need everybody to work on this. I think it's absolutely critical. And we, we often... It's a bit like a family sometimes uh, running this sort of community-focused organisation. People disagree, right? There are fallouts. Mostly people accept that they're still friends despite the fallouts. Um, But we have a healthy diversity of opinion. And if you even look at the content from our event, which is on our website, you'll see, you know, Francis Maud did the most amazing keynote, really passionate talking about he viewed COP as a success and how he viewed the corporates turning up as super powerful and being the first COP that happened at. Then you'll see other people from my organisation completely on a different trajectory of opinion, right? They do not think it was successful. They think there's more needing done. They think the the youth groups are leading the way, the, the youth action is the way forward. So I think that healthy diversity of opinion and a bit of friction is necessary for us to get to a successful end point. So one of the things I took away from COP was that that was a good thing and that the challenge is there. Um, Has it been quiet? Do you think we're maybe more sensitive because we were the hosts and there was so much noise before? I don't know. It's not there is, that, there is that Scottish psyche about maybe not getting above <laughs> a station or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who do you think we are? 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, it, it could be a bit of that. But I also think if we look at my organisation, I said I was worried about youth washing. I didn't want to be in any way associated with anything like that. I was worried about greenwashing. I, I was worried about hosting a big event and then not delivering afterwards. And we've been off working on what our next deliverables are with the learning that we had. So we, we hosted this event for the first time. Uh, we were really lucky. Federated Hermes had built this massive space right next to the hydro and we had all of it and we had a really successful event, I think. But how do you measure success? So we're now working to build a follow-on event one year later and we're working on a, a number of different work streams and activities that will deliver that one year later because I really want to make sure that we're held to account by ourselves and that we sort of measure our achievement and you know in an ideal world and assuming we can raise the money for it as a small not-for-profit we'll do a one year on a two year on and keep going until the work that we need to do is done yeah i think that's powerful as well amanda that you've got that in sight as well you know um as as an organization you know you're, you're thinking about the future for that as well it's still an active work stream there is a plan in place i think there's there's something powerful behind that there and i mean just going back to the the cop piece as well before i move on i think a lot of the points here are, are absolutely critical you know and we mentioned about the business and the youth and the disagreements and agreements and you know and what and so on and so forth I think I think that's I think that is healthy in a in a democracy in general. You know that is how ultimately society does sort of function. But I mean, I suppose there will always be the question for those who probably say you know COP wasn't a success. Yeah, are corporates doing enough? I mean, there was a report came out you know a couple of weeks ago showing that actually at the top level, quite a number of them are failing significantly on net zero targets. Apart from you know maybe a, a small handful. And you no, know, we're obviously seeing right now in in Scotland as well with the kind of energy crisis and oil and yeah. gas are you know making billions in profits. Are they doing enough on net zero? Are do they need held account more in terms of you know what they're actually investing in, or is it all just profit, profit, profit for shareholders? Where do we? Where, where's the balance to be struck? It's really interesting. One of the points that Francis Maud raised was that lawyers are responsible to some extent. And as an ex-lawyer, everybody sort of looked at me and I've been getting a bit of a push around it. And as an ex-lawyer, maybe I'm more willing to criticise lawyers than if I was still practising. Um, on the other hand, I also understand their pain and their problems. But when you're in a company, what you do, because you have a duty to the company, is you protect the organisation and you put in place processes and procedures that makes sure that the, the company is protected. And if you give lawyers um, profit and shareholder value and perpetual growth as their targets for the organization, then their duty is to, to make sure that you're doing things in an appropriate way to achieve that. And it's not just the lawyers, it's the, the whole management structure, but the lawyers in particular, when it comes to risk, they are responsible generally for signing off processes in these big companies to make sure that the, the least or the most risk adverse route generally is followed. And I think there needs to be a wee bit of a shift there. So instead of taking the most risk averse route, we take a route that is not just risk averse, but environmentally sustainable. And I think that small change will make a shift, but that will happen partly with legislation 
and partly with the change in what we, we see driving companies. And looking at what corporate drivers are, you know, you look at ESG, you look at shareholder value, I think we need to see a shift in models and thinking around companies and corporate value. I mean, you're probably a fan of doing economics like I am, <laughs> but um, if, if you look at that whole picture, creating a broader playbook, creating a broader scorecard for corporates is going to be really, really important because ultimately perpetual growth was going to run out at some point. It has to hit a wall. It, it, it can't continue for infinity. It's just not physically possible. So we have to sort of own that a bit, I think, and sit down and rethink. And when you're doing that rethink, going back to that collective equity term that I used, I think we need to be broader in who we consult and make sure that those whose future we're affecting are at that table, going back to the youth movement. I think you're, you're absolutely spot on, Amanda. And there's a few things there as well. I mean, just taking that point there, who, who are we affected? I was at a few events and we spoke quite a lot about the kind of global south as well and how do we bring them to the table and those who are slightly further away, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. geographically, but also in terms of other kind of social economic factors as well. How do we bring them closer to the table? And I think that's something we, we all need to get better at, you know, in terms of yeah. our own respective organisations and others as well. You know, we always need to keep striving for that. The second Another point you made there as well, Amanda, on the legislation front and the kind of economic mm -hmm. piece, the podcast previously with Benjamin, actually, we spoke quite a lot about this economic front. But one of the things mm -hmm. that is quite interesting on the legislative front is you know, we've also the impact of like the five pens carrier bag, 10 pens carrier bag charge. You know, now that's well, it's quite a significant legislative move, but in mm -hmm. actual quite a small thing which really has sort of shifted behaviour. Do we probably need to look at more legislative change? Because at the end of the day, you know, humans, you know, a political science standpoint would sort of say humans are all kind of rational. Mm. We all think for ourselves. So in actual fact, would it not be better that legislative forces change as opposed to relying on humans to say, I'll change my behaviour for the good of the environment? As much as there is a clear segment of society doing that, probably there's not enough to enforce real change of relying on humans to purely do it for, as I say, the kind of good of the environment, unfortunately. It's not really open your case focus. So purely answering from a personal perspective, yes, it's probably better that you make people like me do what they ought to do. And, you know, I'm as guilty as everybody else. If I think about it from my sort of skill set and organisation perspective and technology, one of the things that we regularly say and said through COP is that technology will never be the solution, right? It's a tool. It's something that can help deliver better solutions. But when we start to look at that and how we are impacted by it, if you open it up, what that means is that you're sharing and you're sharing the sort of know-how and the source code if it's software. You're sharing the data that gives you the stats that allows you to build stuff if you're looking at data or to provide better services and things. So that openness creates trust. It creates transparency. But it also allows more engagement and that allows entry to markets and it allows building systems without the same costs so there are real values there in that openness around technology. It also allows recycling of code, 
but it allows products to last longer because you can open it up and fix it. Now, you you and I, I I'm guessing that you don't code, I don't code, so you no. and I probably <laughs> couldn't hack in there and fix it ourselves, but we can find somebody who has those skills and it means that we're not forced to change our phones, we're not forced to throw away TVs that are still working fine if you just had a wee fix and it allows product to last longer. Now, that's not in the interest of companies selling you product but it is in the interest of society. And it's one of the, the benefits that we see in opening up the technologies. Absolutely, Amanda. And it goes back to that. I mean, and, and that is a thing, you know, technology often possibly isn't seen as part of the circular economy. We think of things mm -hmm. about waste and, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of physical waste and recycling and stuff. And we possibly don't consider technology in the same bracket because, you know, we just think, oh, well, we'll just get a new iPhone or we'll just get a new laptop. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't think about, you know, how do we actually, you know, as you say, maintain that as well. And it, and it leads me on nicely to the kind of next segment around technology is, what have been some of the key shifts that you've seen from the broader tech sector and also indeed technologists in, in the move towards climate and sustainability? Because one thing I certainly still felt at COP, you know, I know you guys, you know, focus quite a lot on it, but there still wasn't technology being discussed enough in my opinion at the top top tables you know there was people like you know ourselves uh, and other organizations who were kind of you know focusing on the latest innovations and, and whatnot but there probably still for me wasn't enough of technology at the very top level of government mm -hmm. our event was on the 11th of november so the last day and last night of cop the second last day and last night but the last full day really and it was interesting because as we started to publicise it, we've got quite a strong social media presence, particularly on Twitter, where a lot of the engineers hang out. And there was real pushback. I mean, people were really pleased to see the event, but they were saying, where are the other events? Where's the rest of the technology sector? And it was interesting that that presence wasn't being felt by our own communities. There's always an issue when it comes to the top tables and getting that understanding. Um, and that, that I think is reasonably expected. And the conversations were starting to filter through. We had some partners, you know, who were in the, the main um, zones. Those partners though, I don't feel were in an, I don't feel there was enough scale in those partners. I don't feel there were enough of them being seen and having that opportunity. So I think you're right that the tech sector wasn't there with enough strength. And I think we're just getting our heads around this like many other sectors. We've got a head start in open because it's so obvious. If you go to what the UN does and you look at the sustainable development goals for open technology, they absolutely align with our principles and how we work. If you look at, um, I think it's digital principle six that says, you know, you need to use open source software, you need to have open data. All of that sits there for a reason and it sits there because if you take um, a tool and you give it to someone in an emerging country, it's like that old, you know, give a man a fish and he eats a meal, teach a man to fish and he, he eats for life. The, um, what we've seen in the Mojo Loop, which is a, a project that's spun out of the Gates Foundation is a really good example. Mojo Loop's a payment platform and it's in a couple of countries like Equatorial Guinea and um, Ivory Coast, I think. 
Now, if you look at it, when they give the, the platform for payments to those countries, normally you would be signing up to licenses every year, you'd be looking to buy support, you wouldn't be able to configure it to suit what you wanted in a proprietary world. But actually, the people in those countries have formed communities and they're able to build their own support. And by doing that, they learn the skills on the job. And they learn them from collaborating with other people. So we're really seeing the benefits of that open environment coming into play as we try and create more equity. You know, when you cross when you cross border and you get into the the sort of wide variety of uh, levels of development that we have across the globe. I think it's it's, fant- it's a fantastic example. Those ones that you mentioned there of tech for good, I suppose, is the the, the phrase that we kind of use now. But I mean, I think even more generally than that, Amanda, do you still think that you know your view as well that the digital transformation journey has only just, in some ways, begun for some sectors? You know, obviously, COVID, you know, kind of forced mm-hmm. a lot of you know industries and sectors to think about you know what does our digital footprint look like? What do we need to do more with regards to digital and, and you know open technology? Yeah. So on and so forth. So while you know, I think you know the pandemic for a lot of industries forced them to think a bit more creatively about digital technologies. Do you do you feel that we are kind of somewhat still at the very start of that journey, or do you actually think we're advancing at a, a decent pace? I hope we're not at the start because I've been doing it for years, <laughs> <laughs> decades. Come on! Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I don't think we're at the start, but no. I think we're only part way along the journey. Um, uh, Enterprise, I think, is further down the route than the the public sector. I think that it's patchy and there's a lack of joined upness and cohesiveness when you look at what people are doing. And certain things have been done in a rush, which means that they have to go back and be fixed. Um, Last year, I think I told you this before, last year I worked with the Energy Digitalization Task Force and they pulled a report together, which is now published. It was published about two and a half weeks ago for the energy minister. And they're talking about building the digital spine and the infrastructure for the energy sector. And it's interesting that they're now looking at how do we do this in a cohesive way that allows, like the open banking stuff, it allows for customers to be able to move and take their data from one provider to another simply. It allows small suppliers in the supply chain to come in and build apps on top of things and interoperate. And that to be done in a streamlined and sleek and ultimately open. I'm sorry I keep saying open, but it is the future, but an open way. Um, And that report, I believe, has been really well received. But the interesting piece is this spine and the fact that they're talking about the infrastructure of our public sector being digital, which it isn't fully yet. I mean, we're all on our phones and using apps for everything. Sometimes that's not a good thing, I know. But it is the way that we now interact with each other. And it is getting better and better. But as that public... Uh, sector and that those public services that we rely on that critical infrastructure becomes digital we need to know that it's uh, built in a way that's transparent that creates trust and that it's secure and we also need it to become something that we recognize in the way we recognize hospitals and roads you know that it's not just the physical thing that is there that is supporting each of us but that there's this digital piece and we need to be comfortable about how it's being done. 
Yeah, no, absolutely, Amanda. I think you know that's been a kind of debate that's sort of raged on the last few years in Scotland. Is that how do we, you know, think about you know Wi-Fi or, or, or digital infrastructure in the same way we do as you know clean water or, or, or so on and so forth? And um, because there's obviously during the pandemic there was that kind of piece around the sort of digital divide and it kind of highlighted some kind of glaring sort of inequalities across you know the world slash the UK. On the, the kind of openness piece as well, mm. do you think that will also empower citizens to be a bit more forthcoming with their data and that they can trust it? Or do you still see there being a bit of a barrier be- between citizens slash consumers and the provider? There's so much to unpack in what you've just said. We could talk about it <laughs> know, for right? hours. I'm I thinking about where to question. start with you. <laughs> Big questions. Um There's lots of different bits to that. So, you know, I'm sitting in central London with Wi-Fi that is as variable as if I was in West Wales or Bambecula, and I'm paying through the nose for it, right? I've got the, I I do a lot of these kind of things and presentations, and it's important that my Wi-Fi works. So I spend on it, and I spend top of the range price, yet half the time it doesn't work. And that's something that's just not acceptable, right? We need to have an infrastructure that works, whether it's for me or for a child trying to do their homework in Aberdeen or in a rural area of Scotland. It needs to work across the board. And there's just no excuse for it, not in this day and age. And I think that has to be the critical pathway. You mentioned digital exclusion, which is something really dear to my own heart. Um, We've done something that came out of the pandemic actually we've done the kids courses and we've done two of them in 2020 and 2021 they're free they're on openuk.uk slash open kids camp and they're each 10 animated lessons they've got magazines with them and we've done a glove giveaway and we give away these gloves that digitally make music they're based on something Imogen Heap did and they allow children to learn to code they learn about the sustainable development goals and they learn about um, digital stuff like data centers and the fact that every time you play a game you're creating data which is infecting the, the environment so I think I'm pretty proud of the content we created and it matches key stage three so it's for sort of 11 to 15 year olds um, but we gave away these gloves and the, the template to make the gloves is available free. They use a, a micro bit, which you can get from a library and most of the schools have got them. Um, we did it because, well, in fact, we gave away 8,000 of them over two years. And we did it because we were really conscious that there were so many kids who were at home and didn't have stuff to do or had stuff to do weren't really learning what they needed to in a practical way and we thought this was a good overlay and an extra for them but we also focused on the the young people who'd been given laptops and given tablets through the pandemic uh, to try and not just give them the glove but we gave away I think about 1500 microbits as well that we sourced and the, the, the sort of feeling behind that is the need to make sure we make a difference. And I know people across lots of different parts of the tech sector have been doing this. And there are organisations sort of bringing us all together to make sure that these deliverables are worthwhile and accessible and that the right kids are getting the stuff. We shouldn't be doing that. Right. It's a great thing that we're each doing and I'm proud that we're doing it, but we shouldn't be doing that. It shouldn't be necessary. You know, the fact that children need these digital devices to do their schoolwork they should be provided for them 
And, and I think we have to see that shift. We have to see a move so that everybody has access to what they need on a digital front. Yeah, It's a uh, no-brainer, right? Yeah, no, and I think as well, Amanda, it, it kind of ties into the, the broader skills issue that we're having right now across sort of the UK and Europe as well. And thinking even, you know, and you know, even more specifically with regards to the kind of climate tech sector, I mean, mm -hmm. there's a dearth in terms of the skills coming through that pipeline right now. So like yeah. while London, your massive hub for climate tech investment, Scotland is growing in terms of the climate tech scene here. But the problem that a lot of these companies are having is the kind of the move from like you know startup to scale up or established mm -hmm. SME to you know larger corporate whatever it may be is access to people as well. Now yeah. part of that is you know I think the digital and the sustainability piece for me are intrinsically linked. Um, mm -hmm. I think you know, particularly when we think about the kind of climate tech piece, but. I mean, do we? I mean, you've mentioned there about the, the kind of the, the kind of laptops and the tech piece as well. Do we really need to focus on also really embedding carbon education into the curriculum as well? Well, that was uh, the first course we did. Does not do anything on sustainability, and we did it as a complete reaction to the pandemic. It was done for a small group of uh, young people who were part of a competition, and we realised the content was good and we should share it. So when we were given the money to do a second one, we sat down and we worked out what do we want to teach young people? And we realized that if you're doing anything around technology, you should be thinking about sustainability as well. So we introduced the concepts and we introduced the SDGs as a start point, something that you can build off. And I was really shocked once we'd done it, at how many people wanted to lift the content. And it sort of goes through the course, but there's also a double page spread in each of the 10 easings about it that our chief sustainability officer wrote. And I didn't realize that there isn't a lot of education for young people on that stuff already. You would just expect it to be there. So again, you know, anybody who wants to use the content that we've shared, it's Creative Commons, you can take it and you could reuse it. You can use bits of it, it's fine. But we also discovered that as you say, there is this pipeline issue. And we see it when you look at the startups in the UK and Europe. And I think I saw something saying there's more unicorns in the UK than anywhere else in the world in a month, you know, in January this year, something along those lines. Um, for decades, the startups have got to a certain stage and they've left and they've gone to California or the US where they're funded. And we've really sat down with a group of founders. Um, most of them have had some failures, but they've also been very successful. And we sat down with this really, I would say, elite group of founders and open, and we talked to them about it. And we have put together a 10-week training. I don't think you know this. It started three weeks ago. Um, it's called our Future Founders Scheme. Anyone that wants to can go and do it. The sessions are recorded. You can watch them later on. We obviously focus on open technologies, but a lot of what we're talking about is stuff that you could use in any kind of startup. And frankly, if you're building anything on tech, you might not consider yourself an open technology business, but you're going to be using a fair amount of it, whether you know it or not. So um, what we've done is look at things like product development, um, revenue generation, hiring communities, when do you hire your first employees, the stuff that doesn't really seem to be being taught widely enough. And we've put that out there as well. And we're working with a number of universities on building some modules because, again, it's not just the engineers. Um, the business people, 
one of the reasons the startups move is the funding. Another reason is that there aren't business people with the, the tech skills available at the scale that we need them. And we need to teach more of these business schools. And back to the lawyers, we need more lawyers that understand this stuff. So we really need to build a broader ecosystem. And it's not just Scotland, it's across the UK. We need to build and share these skills and make sure that there's a pipeline coming through. I think almost more close to my heart is the fact that we're looking at building a module for apprenticeship schemes too. And I do believe that for many people, university is not the right option. It's not necessary. It creates debt that they don't need to carry through life with them. And if you can go into a role that's practical without going through a university course, but doing an apprenticeship scheme, to me, that's a no brainer. Yeah, and I think I think as well that, that these types of things, I think um, you know, tech companies in general, but more specifically on kind of climate green tech, is something that they probably need to consider as well. Because if you're not yeah. getting your talent pipeline coming through the traditional routes, whatever that may be, then it's probably you know worth investigating other avenues as well. And I think we, we we're probably talking here about you know kids leaving school and whatnot, but mm -hmm. I think there's also probably a role here as well in the workforce as a whole, how do we upskill and reskill employees yeah. in, in the kind of sustainability agenda? Because a lot of it will be, frankly, alien to a lot of people in terms of their 30, 40 year career today. Mm -hmm. You know, the word sustainability or you know climate change has been seldom mentioned. So it, I, I suppose it's a balance of you know that pipeline from mm -hmm. the education piece right through to the rows in work. It's been a learning for me, right? I said to you, my nephew got on my case a few years ago, and I think we were one of the, the first of our kind of organisation to bring a sustainability officer in. And we brought a chap called Christian Perino in just over a year ago. And Christian would give me a ride, first of all, uh, if I was talking about climate change. He, he wants us to be thinking about sustainability because climate change is massively important, but it's part of a bigger picture. And that sort of feeds through into mentality. And the mentality is that sustainability has to be part of everything we do. So we have to see those correlations, those patterns, those connections, whatever it is we're doing and whatever it is we're thinking about. So I totally agree with you that we need to get people educated in green tech, but you're not gonna start there. You're gonna start by explaining to a young person or somebody in business, what sustainability is and why it matters and how it impacts every aspect of their daily life and their business. And then with the technology piece, I think it's very, very similar in, in just bringing that um, along the journey. Yeah, I think I think so. And, and it's, it's, it's very similar, you know, the technology and the sustainability piece, you know, a lot of it in some industries will, will as I say, be, be fairly alien there as well. I mean, in terms of the, the sector itself, Amanda, I mean, we mentioned, I think you mentioned there now about, you know, us constantly be on our phones and stuff. And I remember one stat that yeah. always sort of amazes me is that, you know, every time you send a thank you email, it's the equivalent of sort of boiling a cup of tea, you know? So mm -hmm. does the technology sector also have a role in the same way that aviation and the same way oil mm -hmm. and gas? Do we, does our sector also need to reflect a bit more inwardly and think, right, how do we drive down emissions in data centres? How Absolutely. do we look more sustainability? Mm. You know, because sometimes I think possibly, and this is maybe maybe being a bit harsh, you know, is it the tech sector maybe think, well, we're not drilling oil out of the ground, so actually we're not as bad as you know the oil and gas sector or the aviation sector, but 
and data centers clearly have a key role to play in our net zero journey. So um, is there a balance to be struck there as well? Yeah, and I think there is a balance, but also it goes back to what you're saying about education and understanding. I've learned a lot in the last 18 months about data centers, probably more than I ever wanted to know. Um, yeah, part of that. Terrifying. It's an education journey, but it's also quite terrifying as well. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And understanding that any interaction you have with a piece of technology means that data is being processed is critical. And we started a project, I think this time last year, and it was a blueprint for the data center of the future. And for that blueprint, we were building an open technology, um, the hardware environment running that was open, running open source software and using open data, all of which, when added up, reduced emissions by, I think off the top of my head, it's something like 70 plus percent. And it's moving to technologies like containerization, which has all been built in open source that allows virtual machines. Doing that kind of shift means that you use less hardware, you create less heat, you have less emissions. We looked at an environment where we were looking at something that was edge-based. And by making it edge-based, you brought it closer to the user, which made transactions faster, which was uh, useful to business. But it also allowed us to look at models that might use derelict uh, office stock or shops and retail sh uh, stock post-pandemic. And we, we sort of enabled it with 5G. We created something where the outputs, because there will always be outputs, by bringing it into that urban area and making it smaller and edge-based, it allowed for sort of pockets of heat generation that could be fed back into communities. So you you might use it, and there are great examples of this. I think um, in Finland, is it? They've got uh, lobster farms in the Netherlands. They're running um, greenhouses. It will be, be Finland or Estonia. One of those two are always <laughs> doing something on the tech You've been front. Data, so yeah, a data center home where it's been done by you. Um, it, but we were thinking, you know, in Dundee, you've got the Eden Project being built. Why not put a data center next to it and let it heat it? You know, let's start looking at this. There's probably some derelict warehouse space in that vicinity down by the harbour that could easily be used for that purpose. So we pulled together a really interesting blueprint that doesn't invent much. It creates a few gap fillers, but it really brings together things, connections that maybe other people haven't seen to create this blueprint. Uh, we launched it at uh, COP26, so it got a Scottish name. It's called Patchwork Kilt, and we gave it to an organisation in open technology that's quite different. We're more about industry representation, advocacy and policy. We gave it to the Eclipse Foundation, which is a traditional open source foundation that hosts code, and it's taken it over as a project and is building it out with community contributions going forwards. But when we think about that data center space, you know, and the data transactions, the way that I've started explaining it to people is that your data is going to become the next single use plastic. And if we don't work out ways of rationalizing and reducing those data transactions in the structures that we're using and in the way that the processing is happening, then we're going to end up with these data lakes bringing us down. They're probably the most impactful thing that we're going to have from a sustainability perspective. That's, that's really interesting, Amanda. And, you know, I was going to say, 
it's such a it was going to say a good analogy, but that you know I don't want, I don't want to be seen to kind of condone it, but um, I think it is really it is a powerful message that you know your data is going to be the next sort of single use plastic, and I think you know what the, I think one of the issues and it goes back to what I was saying earlier on about the, the sectors thinking that because a lot of it seems quite abstract because maybe you mm-hmm. can't see you know your data. I know you can technically speaking, but you know people can see it as being a bit more abstract. That yeah. in itself brings challenges as well. So I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a huge journey we'll, we'll need to go on and think more creatively about that. I mean, in Scotland, I mean, there is obviously some examples, great examples in, in Glasgow eh, with IMR and Catrick Technologies who just launched one of the first green data centres, which is, you know, really mm-hmm. interesting. But the, this probably needs to kind of ramp up sort of tenfold and beyond. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's really the only way to get to the, the targets that we need. And I think you'll see the data centre sector. It's already gone through some recent legislation and I think you'll see an awful lot more coming down the line there. And I think we'll probably see that around cloud computing as well, just because of the scale and the impact that it's having. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, the cloud computing piece in our annual survey we did last year, that was one of the most in-demand cloud computing skills as well. So Mm -hmm. I think you know, the predictions around that could be an interesting one. One of the final points I want to talk about on the tech side of things, Amanda, is around where do you, I mean, you're clearly very passionate about the openness piece as well, which is yeah. great. Where do you see the key gains being made in terms of net zero positive gains on the tech sector? What are some of those technologies to look out for? I mean, you mentioned kind of the cloud computing there. Is there mm-hmm. any other? spring to mind that you think are going to be critical for investment for people yeah and so on and so forth are you looking for tips um when (laughs) i've asked for those recently (laughs) i'm told serverless is the way forward um we'll claim that's right or not we get this right (laughs) (laughs) you want to take a moment and we'll write it down no I, i honestly it's very difficult to say i I think that the shift to open is massively significant and I run the risk of seeing it too often, but it it is fundamental to how we're going to change our technologies and how we're going to create greener, more sustainable technologies. And what we're going to see is an elevation in that role. And I think the energy sector report sort of says it all that we have to move to this kind of infrastructure for the benefit of everybody. So I think we'll see that. Um, I, I've mentioned to you that, uh, you know, low code and serverless, so the sort of buzzwords at the moment. There's a big focus on AI. And I'm always slightly skeptical because it, it's not quite there yet. And it's not something, you know, it's like blockchain, right? Blockchain used to be the buzzword. We used to play bingo at conferences with the word blockchain because, you know, it was just bandied about all the time. And I think AI and ML have the same sort of risk and danger. I think that's a fair point about the, the buzzword bingo. Um, I think what I would say, I mean, certainly in the AI piece, you know, as you're probably aware in Scotland, you know, launched the AI strategy and there's been a lot of learnings around that, around the mm-hmm. ethics piece and stuff. And, uh, you know, we, we were quite closely involved in that. Um, but I think you're absolutely right, Amanda. You know, it, it, there is a bit of a way to go on that journey. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly the blockchain piece is interesting because obviously what's been going on in the States with, you know, the kind of fintech sector and how they've utilised blockchain is sort of um, light years ahead, I would say, uh, certainly of, you know, kind of Scotland. So how it is, but the, the environmental impact that it has 
is you know it's unreal it's incredible is, so i think we have to we have, we really have to balance where that's going and the yeah. you know the, the benefits that it brings and the need for it and it's the kind of thing you know the whole dlt technology space it, it, it should be used where it brings benefit not for the sake of it um i think we're also looking at things like gaia x in europe building a data infrastructure model for europe they're looking at federation and I think things like the federated data model, we're going to see more and more of that, where you don't have to replicate the whole data sets, but you can call on them from other places. I think that kind of structure is going to be more important as time goes by. Yeah, and it, it goes back to that whole circular piece as well. And it, and it really, in fact, you know, certainly today what I've learned is I, probably, you know, just some examples you've used, Amanda, I, I, I didn't realise just how, circular the tech sector could actually be you know and it is mm -hmm. possible for us to move away from this single use kind of you know society in the same way absolutely have, which is which is positive and that gives us room for optimism as it, well it does and when you look at software today i mean let's use software for an example you're looking at 70 to 80 percent of code bases are open and they're that not because somebody like me is advocating for it they're that that is how developers code they reuse, they recycle, they don't build everything from scratch. And that circular economy piece is really fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good example for the, the rest of the sector. And on the optimism piece, I'm going to try and finish on this, unless you throw a curveball here, Amanda. Um, <laughs> but in terms of I always like to kind of finish the show with a kind of a look ahead to the future, a crystal ball, if you will, is that are you confident? Are you kind of in the middle? Are you sort of pessimistic about our, our chances of kind of reaching net zero by 2045 or, or 2050 wherever your kind of respective you know kind of views on that are um where, where's your kind of stance what can for you? i i'm a person who watches scotland play rugby and always believes we're going to win right i start every game absolutely convinced we're going to win now sometimes we do as we know but often we don't, right? So I start everything as the eternal optimist and I absolutely optimistically believe we'll get there, but we've all yeah. got to throw our energy and our efforts behind it. Yeah. No, I think that's that's true, Amanda. And I mean, I suppose I'm probably the other side. I'm a I'm a Falcon <laughs> fan, unfortunately. So well, usually, usually, usually I start eternally pessimistic and anything is a bonus. So I think in future I'll maybe kind of revert to your scenario. I'll start off thinking positive and then you know we'll take it from there. But um Amanda, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um really, really great insights as well. And I uh, just want to thank you for your time again today. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been lovely Thank talking to you. Thank you very much, Amanda. Take care. Thanks. Climate Conversations is a Herald podcast sponsored by Epson. To find out more about their environmental vision, visit epson.co.uk slash about slash environment and take 20% off an annual subscription to the Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Enter HeraldPod 2021 at your checkout and access our award-winning journalism from your mobile, tablet and PC.